Welcome inside the Parisi Palace, high above 3773 East Broadway. This is a live edition of the Jake Feinberg Show. Coming on Power Talk, please go to our website, powertalk.live. Download our free app to your smartphone so you can stream all of our live local programming, including Solomon on Blast, the Jim Parisi Show, and yours truly, the Jake Feinberg Show. Can't thank you enough for making us part of your day today. And uh, really a high honor to, uh, to bring in a cat that... Um, has been on my radar for some time. I, I get the feeling that rhythm has been inside his body since he was a baby, um, basically just banging on mallets and pans and all sorts of polyrhythms because what I witnessed last week in the Pacific Northwest was somewhat remarkable um, on vibes, on tablas, on drums. Um, this cat is puts passion into everything that he does, and I think most importantly, I could be wrong, but you know what? The, his most important goal, aside from singing for his supper, is to make sure that the lineage of music, spiritual music, gets passed on to future generations. Walking the walk, Mike Dillon, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. Hey, Jake, how you doing? Nice to be here. Uh, it's great to have you, man. Um, I would like you to talk to the audience a little bit about uh, just your, when you were how early on you were able to kind of split your brain in two or four. What I witnessed on the drum kit with you playing vibes, on, soloing on vibes and playing the, the, the bass drums, that was beyond four-way coordination. I've never seen anything like that. But did that was that just something that was natural inside of you from an early age? It definitely wasn't natural, splitting it up, you know, um, it sort of came about because of necessity. The drummer in a band I was in called the Malachi Papers uh, moved to Chicago, and this was when I was living in Kansas City. So I was like, well, I'll start playing drums. And next thing I know, I was like, you know what, I'm going to set my vibes next to my drum set. <laughs> so, you know, I'd be like, well, I'm going to try to solo with my left hand and keep time, you know, keep the ride cymbal pattern going. And, accent stuff with with the bass drum you know and now looking back it's been over 20 years i started doing that back in 97 and uh you know dead kenny g's with brian haas and scarec was, an, was another band was probably was the first touring band where i started doing it and th those guys were real patient with me because i remember there were a few times you know i'd try to get a little fancy and the time would get all messed <laughs> up they like throw things at me and, you know, I learned it on the bandstand, you know, out of fear, like, don't fuck up. Oh, excuse me, don't mess up. No, you can, <laughs> this is, this is, uh, this is extraterrestrial radio streaming, so you can curse. Anything comes out, don't worry about it. All right, cool. So, you know. But I, I want I, you, I, I, this, this whole idea of, like, you know, being able to improvise and still be able to keep time, especially if it's fast tempo. I mean, what I saw in Mount Hood with you playing double bass drums, 
and then pl I mean, it is absolutely. I've never seen. I, I mean, whatever. It was the first time. It was the first time for everything. But um, I do want you to talk about the idea of you know we we're in a society today where cats are coming out of the academy, okay? And for better or for worse, they have huge facility. They have huge chops. And I'm really not trying to bash, bash education, but I don't really believe that you can stretch musical vocabulary uh, in academia. And I wanted you to talk about the first time, it, maybe it was in Billy Goat or it was down in Deep Ellum, but when you really, as a collective unit, felt like you guys were creating new musical vocabulary on the bandstand. Well, to me, that's always been the goal. Even when I was at North Texas State back in the 80s, I would see what every person was into, and something in me from the get-go was like, do what everyone else is not doing. So, and then, as a, and then in the bands I was in, that became the collective goal musically. Like, we knew, like, all right, most of the guys I played with had chops and had gone through the jazz arms race, but our heroes <laughs> like Miles and Coltrane, and you, at some point you realize like you had to be talking. Like when Miles would be like, "Yeah, they're talking a lot, but they're not saying anything." Dig. Like to me, I, you know, I, I I never met Miles, but just as a young jazz neophyte, if you look at it like mysticism or Gnosticism, like all right, he's a high priest. He drops a, these little specks. Of magic, because all like you're right. All the the pedantic knowledge is there. It, it become classified. Jazz is an institution that is taught worldwide. Kids come out. You know, ten year olds know everything Herbie Hancock did. But it's no different than I, I guess. We're, now we're getting into linguistics, like you know the the, the behaviors, like you know Skinner versus Noam Chomsky. <laughs> You know, can you teach a chimp to talk? Right. That right. was a huge argument with those guys. So can you teach a 10-year-old to really say something? Like, I see these prodigies on YouTube, and I'm fascinated by it. But Or is it more important to go out to clubs, get in your van together, smell each other's farts, you know, <laughs> uh, to develop this language, which is, to me is really talking. Like, when you're playing that little clip, you know, that's a beautiful thing about playing with Johnny James and, and Brian Haas is, is we talk when we play, you know, like, and, and I, and I guess like that for me, it was always a byproduct of being in the band. And incidentally, I'm in the band right now with my, my band. We're playing in Little Rock tonight. We played in Kansas city last night. Wow. So this is a, a great time to talk about this stuff. Cause I think like so many of my bands, we started out like playing the music, but it's not until you like put in a little time that all of a sudden you're talking and you're saying something with the music and developing your own vocabulary. So, um, can you can, can we go back to North Texas for a minute? And when you you I want you to talk about what what everyone was doing, and then what you were like. Actually, I'm going to do something against the grain. That that actually seems like your you've worn that as a badge of honor in your career. But I mean, I, I look at the same thing on my radio show. I'm saying, who can I talk to that can enlighten and inspire, but it, I mean, do com something completely singular, completely unique. And the cats that you've all played with, Haas, 
Vidakovich, Benevento, and the list goes on and on and on and on. They're all singular. So, like, that is something that is very important because, let's face it, jazz is taught now as an institution so you can learn all this stuff. You can transcribe Elvin Jones solos, but it's not going to feel right. It's not going to feel right. So could you talk about a specific time at North Texas or any time where you, you were like, okay, this is what people are doing, and I'm going the other way? Well, yeah. I mean, I, first example was every drummer when I was at North Texas was into Dave Weckl. And I remember thinking, that's cool. But I don't want to be in a Dave Dave Weckle. Yeah, I, mean, I got a really great Dave. Weckle. I want to tell you, I Dave Weck. I I'm so glad you said that, and I'll tell you off air. Thank God you just said that. Go ahead, go ahead. You know, and um, <laughs> it's so great. Dude. You know, you know, and, and then like like okay, so I I really got into hand percussion, and, and was like okay, I get I get to play hand percussion, and. And then there became this time where, like, everyone started going to Cuba and everyone wanted to, you know, just get so involved in the tradition. And for me, I was like, all right, I'm going to study the tradition, but I am not going to let be one of those guys up on stage trying to force, uh, force the latest version of you know, a, a, a Wawan Kopi they learn from <laughs> some educator into every single song. You guys, it was in the Weckle, and then one day he was like, I'm not into it. So it was like being surrounded, having like close groups of friends where we just were like, no, we're not going to do what everyone else is doing. I remember Matt one day goes, I'm not going to play a single fill in a song today. And this is a guy who like, when he showed up in North Texas, he was playing the Black Page by Vinnie Colaiuta. You know, at, at 18, he had studied with David Garibaldi. He was a whiz kid from Los Angeles. And to hear a guy with who had incredible chops and still does say, I'm not going to play a fill, it, it, it was just like, yeah, okay, let's do something different. Because, you know, you know, I mean, basically, how many times have you heard a young drummer and they play a fill every four bars or every eight bars? And then it became like, for me, I'd be like, well, guess what? I'm not even going to play on this section of the song. Because to me, that was like the first thing that all percussionists did. They overplayed. And drummers liked playing with me because I'd be like, well, I'm not going to play when you fill. I'm going to let you have the space. Oh, and, you know, and once, once again, we're just, you're just talking about communicating. I'm going to give it with you and, and let you do your thing. Like, you're the drummer. I'm going to compliment you competing with you I want to compliment you so you know and, and then it became more and more to me like okay, everyone here is really boring. I'm going to get a bunch of mushrooms and go to the jazz band gig and see what happens you know and <laughs> Not, no, not, but I mean, not, like, not, it's not. like, it, uh, this is so, I'm talking to Mike Dillon here on the Jake Feinberg show, and he's uh, on tour again. I mean, actually, somewhere on, uh, in Wikipedia, it's like, um, Mike Dillon resides in New Orleans, but is so busy, he's rarely ever there. You know, you're always on the road. And there's something about, and here's the thing, that's the issue that I, I mean, again, I mean, I, I, I want you to talk about the Nola Tet concept in the sense like because when I was listening to your drumming when John when Johnny wasn't there 
you guys could play. There's no way to label your band. You can't really label it with any genre. Uh, it could be in a rock. No. You could you could play a rock hall. You could play a rock hall. You know. Yeah. I mean, and and, and so I'm, I, we really could. We've talked to a big my friends in the rock band Clutch about touring and opening for them, and those guys, you know, they have bona fide metal dudes that come to their shows, like guys wearing, right. you know, Harley shirts <laughs> and whatnot. You know, I don't, I don't want to talk to their crowd. Their crowd is really cool. I love their fans, but they're a rock band, and they're a rock band that's really cool. That said, hey. Man, we love Noatet, and that's how cool they are as a band. So we've talked about that. And back in the old days, you'd go see like a Bill Graham show at, at, at the Fillmore, and it'd be like Led Zeppelin headlining with Rossan Roland Kirk opening. Absolutely. And like uh, you know yeah. Moby Moby Grape, the Intermission Band. You know whatever. It was like that, that's what drives me crazy about music today. Is like. All the two, I don't know. Don't even get me started. No, 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 no. It's, it's a, people. it's a big part but, of my but, show. It's, it's every, you know, you can't, you can't mix genres. It's all R and B or it's all jazz. The, the, the labels have stifled music. And what was so mind blowing about you guys, I'm like, not only are you, you know, it's not a front. I mean, you're drum. I mean, Johnny's the drummer. I get that. But when I heard you drumming, there were certain times where it could have been a heavy metal concert. It almost felt like that. And it's like, yeah. this is exactly, the, the, the most important thing is I want you to talk to peeps about, forgetting about carping about the current times. What if people are seeking and they want to extend the musical vocabulary on the bandstand, can you talk about the essentials that it takes um, basically being in a van, smelling your own farts, making a couple hundred bucks a night. What, you know, what is it, what are the, what are the nuanced qualities of being able to do what Nola Tet is doing? What are the kind of, what, what kind of intestinal fortitude does that take? Well, it also takes us, everyone's super committed to what they do. There's lifers in the band. I mean, that's the other thing I, I try to tell young musicians and mainly just do it by example is, yeah, I wasn't a child prodigy. I worked my ass off. And, you know, guess what I did Monday after when I left that flew out of Portland? I flew to Seattle. I sat with my tabla teacher, Loke Gutter, for two hours. Beautiful artist. I've been studying with him for 20, nearly 20 years now. So, and, and he said in our lesson, he goes, I don't believe in talent. I believe in discipline. I don't believe... And, 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 and nationalism, he started giving the whole history of, like, Muslim invaders <laughs> taking over the Hindu and putting their names on pieces. He's like, yes, they're, they're, they're great tabla players, but these pieces have been around for thousands of years. You know, but, but one day I was, I, I was in a lesson with a loke, and I played it, prepared my piece for him, and he goes, you played that very well, Mike. You just proved that art does not know... Uh, culture, nationalism, or boundary. Art knows art. Mm. The music is the music. And, you know, I would never, ever sit down and try to do what Alok does, like play nothing but classical, you know, uh, tabla pieces that are thousands of years old that have been passed down and, and, and they do their own variations to these beautiful pieces. I do, though, study them 
learn them and pay respect so it's not some sort of cultural appropriation. <laughs> and then it becomes part of me. And then we bring that to the bandstand with Militech. Like, you know, and then, and then you just forget about it and play. And it's like, oh, this little thing will work with this thing that Johnny does. I mean, I mean, you know, and, that, and it really does all start with Johnny and Militech. I mean, Johnny's 68. He'll be 69 on the 27th of this month. But he is a direct living connection to the spiritual fathers of jazz. You know, I mean, he's worked with Dizzy Gillespie. He's worked with Mel Jackson. He toured with Schofield back in the day. I mean, on and on. Mose Allison, Al Hurt. Mose yeah, Al I mean, it goes way back. Al Hurt, yeah, yeah. Eddie Harris. You know, yeah. I always learned some new person he played with. <laughs> and I'm like, really? Jesus, Johnny. You know, and... And, you know, and, you know, I remember one time we were touring, I said, Johnny, I go, man, he goes, uh, and it was our first trio tour, and I was like, okay, I'm done. This was like probably five years ago. And I'm, I'm all nervous because, like, you know, it's just I'm I'm the only harmonic, you know, I'm the leader of the band or whatever. Right. I, I got to say a lot of shit. I got to I gotta really play. And Johnny's just sitting there, he's smoking a joint. He's like, yeah. I remember I played I played with Dizzy. No, he goes, I was playing with this cat. We played some nice rhythm. And then uh, he goes, you know, I was talking to Dizzy Gillespie. And uh, he goes, Dizzy said, I, I play, I practice, I do all this, blah, blah, blah. But when I get on the bandstand, I just play rhythm. I just play rhythm. And I said, ah, oh, so you met Dizzy Gillespie. And then he goes, met Dizzy Gillespie. I played a, a week with him down in New Orleans. But the important thing wasn't the name dropping of Dizzy Gillespie. It was the actual passing of like some knowledge, like from you know, because our first gig, I was just, I was thinking like, has arms raised, like, gotta say all this shit, right? And then it was like, oh yeah, listen to Johnny, listen, talk, play rhythm, play off each other. I mean, it sounds so simple, but that's where the magic is for me, and that's what Nola Tet ultimately we're all doing, you know. Let me bring the guys that started the jazz tradition. Yes, they studied their ass off, they worked their ass off, but they were shamans. They were spiritual. You know, what Miles, Train, Monk, all those guys, I mean, they were channeling something way deeper. And that's the one thing music school can't teach. Exactly. Is that you're spiritual, shamanistic connection. You know, and and Hawk, James, like James has been doing yoga for 25 years. You know, I've been doing my own form of like deep breathing and meditation, and and, and you know, I'm gonna leave some of this out because that's my business. Sure. But we've all like there, there's extra stuff that has to go into the music, and my only disdain of what's happening was it be. Uh, of the music culture is is they 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 don't know how to get that stuff to uh, great players with perfect they can play of it and I'm not talking about you need to shoot heroin for 20 years I'm just saying man there's a healing power that will actually heal you from heroin addiction when I was strung out on heroin and I saw Thelonious Monk movie in a hotel and I was hating my life. I was like, I gotta get my shit together and get back to that. You know, it doesn't mm. matter what Monk was doing. It matters that like 
his music was so beautiful and powerful that it makes you cry when you hear it, and it can heal people. Because that's what that's what music is. It's healing. So, you know, Brian Haas is a master healer. You know, he's well. I mean, but I so mean, I also, I mean, I will send you my 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 interview with my radio interview with Haas because I, my my feeling is, in order to heal, you you have to have surrendered at some point to you know uh, your own in a no one is is everyone in that band is everybody has their scars and i don't think you can authentically heal people with music unless you yourself have been healed and haas was very prophetic about some of the health issues the stomach issues he's had how he worked through it ultimately how he just got out of his own way um but i did want that's i'm glad you brought that up i would like you to talk about something because the truth is, my feeling is this, is that there was a huge touring circuit at one time in this country. Art Blakey was tying his drums to the top of a car. I mean, you were going back and forth across the country. Uh, I, I'm working on a documentary on Stan Getz. The guy was a total sociopath, and he was a total junkie as well. And he was, a, he was kind of an asshole. But the point is, can you talk... I don't think I could ask anyone better about how the road can eat you up and and yet how you've been able to sustain because it you need to get stuff out of your system and you know that the only way to inspire and heal is through live music because the road can eat you alive as you know how have you overcome it how do you continue to sustain it really does come down for the to the music like at some point i realized that the heroin and the drugs were, were making me miss gigs. You know, I was one of those guys that got to the point where I didn't know if I was going to make the gig or not. The thing I love more than the thing that I love more than anything on the planet, more than any woman I've been with, more than you know, is music. I just this is like my love. You know, so when I sat, I had a dream one night. And the dream, basically, ironically, was, I think Dr. Hussein and a couple other master musicians in my world, they were on one side of life, and it was like I was at this crummy crack hotel or whatever. <laughs> and then on the other side was like all these other, you know, that side of, that the dark side of your soul where you're like just totally lost and annihilating yourself. Right. Because, you know, I, I wasn't some like, it, it was real deal, like, and it still is a struggle. It still is a struggle, and I have, by no means have it beat. But I realize, like, okay, drugs have become more important than music to me. I need to figure out a way to reverse that and make music more important than the drugs. And when I started seeing, instead of me as being some, like, you know, gifted, young, talented artist that, you know, I can do my drugs and play the most badass genius shit on the planet, which is just total egotistical nonsense. When I started seeing myself, it's like, oh, I can play this music and be of service to others. And, and if I'm going to be of service to others, I got to stay true to the path of music and life and walk down it as fearless as possible. Then I... I flipped the switch, and I, you know, and luckily I had a lot of friends that had been down the path. And just like with music, the friends that had been down the path of, like, to death, 
you know, I, I overdosed several times. Um, once I was really ready for, for help mm. and things got better. And then that was when, then another power, because at first you get in the smack and you're practicing, you're playing and you're high and you're like, oh my God, this is so good. But then all of a sudden, like when you clean up, then it becomes, it's the inverse relationship that it's totally uh. mathematical uh. where the paradox is like, okay, you used to get power from your drugs and you'd be on stage and you'd be like, yeah, I'm fucking cool, man. I'm high <laughs> as hell. Rocking thousands of brains tapped into. At least that's what it felt like to me. And this is all just my feelings. And as we know, feelings can be bullshit, but you've got to, however you process it, and, you know, James has been off the needle for fucking since the 70s, man. So right there in that bond he and I have, because we've both gone down that route. And Johnny, you know, for that matter, too, when you've got three guys that are in the band that, that know that this shit takes over your life and it kills you and you've got to stay focused on the music, whatever your path is, Johnny's path was he smokes a lot of weed. James's path is like he does yoga and meditation. My path is play Tabla and drink way too much coffee. But, <laughs> Dude, know, I'm just saying, man, it's, you're still on this fucking planet for a reason. That's the point. And then there's that. Yeah. Then there's a whole other thing. Like, I used to think, oh, I was such a magician because I studied, like, you know, right. magic in the late 80s or whatever. <laughs> that I, I, I was smart enough to beat heroin addiction. And, 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 you know. And then there's the other side of, well, maybe this guy died makes no sense whatsoever like it, it just doesn't make sense the shit's powerful so to me like you have to place your addiction on the music and your obsession on the music and that's basically what I've done and that's what every other artist that I've looked up to has done as well you know being obsessed is part of the game you know I don't you know I, I met William S. Burroughs at the methadone clinic he was completely a uh, uh, very interesting, courteous, nice gentleman. But we've all read the stories. We know what an insane... And he talks about it. He thinks that addiction is part of human nature. It's part of the human condition. Well, we're, ta we're talking to a genius, an absolute... A guy who, who just puts his hand in 12 different cookie jars and seems to evolve. <clears throat> talking about learning respecting where the lineage of the music comes from and then applying it to his own individual voice and sound um let's take a listen to this piece of music uh and uh and we'll come back and break it down yeah <laughs>
Music on the Jake Feinberg Show brought to you by Diggs Dental, the Jewish Community Center of Southern Arizona, Craig Pretzinger of Allstate Insurance, the Bialy Winery of Napa Valley, and a whole host of other cats that I don't want to even get into. We thank you for your support so we can play tunes like that for the legend Mike Dillon. Um, now, that was <laughs> that was the Illuminati trio or the Illuminasty? Who? What kind of? What? What's the name of this of this trio with Haas and Singleton? Okay, so like Illuminati trio is the trio that Singleton, Haas, and I do when we don't have Johnny. Johnny, we've done it. We've done it before in the past, and it was sort of a takeoff Illuminati trio, which is one of the first trios I played in with James, which is Skerrick, Singleton, and myself. Oh. So uh, you know, it's this whole you know we read too much Robert Anton Wilson and. and can you talk about, you know, I want you to talk about your concept. I love talking to cats about this. Um, your concept of that on the downbeat, any note can be the one. I see a lot of rhythm sections, younger, they're really uptight, and they're all, they're like, you know, where's the one? Where's the one? Where's the one? James Jamerson used to, used to yell at people and say, any note can be the one. And I want you to talk about that concept in your mind of any note, that any note can be the one. Well, to me, it's, I had a buddy who played with Elvin, and he said to him, he goes, hey, when you're playing with me, everything's in one. <laughs> That's my good, my good friend, Frank Catalano, great center man from Chicago. Um, you know, I mean, so much of it is relaxation, and I, I listen to it, and, and it is something like, to me, you just want to strive to be able to become more fluid every day, like like time, time but time can always be better, but the idea that it, it can in a grid-based culture now where everything's to a grid. Right. And I, I forget who I was talking to. We were talking about how love supremes speeds up. But to me, as long as the pulse feels good, man, you know, time is one of those conversations. Can you talk about Because my, my, my whole show is my whole show is about rhythm and rhythm is love. I, I just want, I, I just, I, I just want you to talk about the feeling of when you yeah, when yeah, you guys it, get get lost in an improvisation, yeah, it. yeah, yeah. I mean, to me, that's what is part of what defines a band's sound is how they individually internalize where the the pulse of of the uh, of the song or the improvisation is, and then how you come together and do it as a unit. That's what. Really determines to my brain and heart makes like their group. So, having we've built this concept that really works well together because. At the end of the day, that's why Disney said to Johnny, I have fun playing rhythm with you. It, it's all rhythm, you know? 
But, you know, music, or at least when I was a young music school student, I was always, all right, you know, I started on drum. So the metronome and my snare drum studies at 10 years old was, was, you know, you play with the metronome. All right. The metronome was the timekeeper. And eventually you got a timekeeper. And, uh, you go to music school, I'm talking about me, and you get there, you just you have all this knowledge sitting in your head, and you're like, what the hell I'm doing? Play school. So once you really get your time thing together, and... One of the issues with Skype is that it, it, you still are you still listen. You're going through a rough patch of cell service. It's I'm I can't I don't want to lose. This is gold. You're what you're saying is gold. We're losing your voice. You're losing me. Oh. Well, no, I I almost feel like we need to do that over again. Maybe in part two. I mean, what you're you some of the stuff was just. I mean. Um, can you can you talk to the audience? I was fascinated with this, and I wanted you to talk about Deep El Deep Ellum, Texas. Uh, it, it was a neighborhood of arts and entertainment. Um, it was one. It looked like an absolutely rowdy place, completely rowdy. And this band Billy Goat that I was checking out was amazing. And I, but I, I wonder about you, you've been around a lot, and and maybe. Um, you can help enlighten me and the audience about outside of New Orleans, other other regional centers in this country that are producing organic regional music. Um, at the time that Billy Goat was going on, it was clear that there were many pockets of regionalism. Now that we're fully interconnected, I'm not so sure. Can you talk about some regional pockets of music, being that you're on the road all the time? Yeah. It's still there, but it is definitely becoming more homogenized. Right. It's just like the best spot where it was part of this Texas funk scene that started happening in the late 80s, early 90s. Okay. And we had heard about the Red Hot Chili Peppers and Fishbone and even Bad Brains and a few other bands, Firehose, guys that like were doing something that could, had elements of funk. And then, of course, we loved George Clinton. There wasn't, you internet that made us all try to sound like the same band so you just got you, you get these records and you didn't really know what you're doing and you would just start having fun in the garage and you sort of develop your own sound by accident by trial and tribulation and you had all these bands that were just sort of doing their own little thing and And all of a sudden, there was a scene of people around it, and and five hundred people a night coming out to support three or four bands that that were of a, a similar vein, and, and it was a really sort of magical time. And, and the other thing that was really influential on all of us bands back then was the birth of hip hop. You know, like I discovered Public Enemy and Boogie Down Productions and Stetsasonic, and you know all these bands. You know, and then Tribe Called Quest and De La Soul. So like. I looking back on my life, I realized like I was a twenty year old musician that was coming up had been raised on jazz and classical music, but then all of a sudden I discovered hip hop and punk rock. So 
so that just became part of my vocabulary and going wow i love seeing these guys rap it's <laughs> totally like free and liberating and i mean i went up to new york in, in 88 and and saw like you know i i, I remember seeing krs1 walk by me and pete larock and i went to this rap off where i just i saw like new york mcs battling you know oh the there was no eminem at the time you know like and when I started doing it with my band, the critics at the time, they were just like, oh, these guys are just a Red Hot Chili Peppers wannabe. You know, it's like, no, we're just like seeing what to us is the coolest music to emerge. In our, it's just totally new. Hip-hop was totally new. There was no bullshit like auto-tune, fucking jive, pop hip-hop. It was from the streets. It was real. Dude, it was... uh, Listen, fuck more, bitch less. I mean, it is the most razor's edge, funkiest bass lines, great lyrics at the height of hip-hop. It had not even... Not even even a a, a sniff of the Red Hot Chili Peppers. That original... No, you know, at the time, I got panned so hard and just dissed. And and it's just like any other thing, you know, I just know, like, looking back at the timeline... I was doing that shit before Limp Biscuits or 311 or any of these other bands that got famous doing the, the, the funk metal thing. And, and that's why Prince's manager signed me to a record deal. You know, but wow. I got fucked wow. up on heroin right. and blew the deal. But, dude, I mean, he was also Weather Report's manager. He's like, man, you're onto something, kid. You know, fucking, I remember hanging out with someone always on acid. He's you know, he's in his piano going, I'm the next Beethoven, motherfucker. Uh, you know, and tell me about chocolate stories. But, you know, it didn't matter. Like, there was no, I wasn't trying to get Instagram likes or any of that shit. Oh, dude, can we, can we, can we listen to I a tune? Can we listen to music. one of these tunes so the people know what, what we're yeah, talking man. about? All right, let's put it in and we'll come back. Flopping your breath as radioactive. I'm a great fisherman. Wanna get laid? Try to prosper, yeah. buy peach marmalade. The fruit tooth right. king is what I am. Papa, I say the man is down with the go plan. Half man, half girl, pan the 90s Singing so nasty, 
walk and massage you like stone the hinge. I wanna meet some aliens, take me out of space and let the games begin. Peanut butter and bananas, but they have wet feet. Cause the pointy antennas, ballets return to these. Don't be melancholy, create a beauty paradise by a tropical island. Coconuts will live at us and take a bath. In my bus, I'm gonna get mentally psyched. The dancing is right soon. The ghost neck on the net, that's with the pants. Not with you, I'm with the tasty sips from my nostrils. I howl at the moon. Shine out the horn, take off fruit of loops. That, that album, 19... What happened, bro? Oh, Bush Roaming Mammals, man. I mean, <laughs> right on the razor's edge there, Dylan. I, I mean, can you tell me why why the reception was was so poor for that? Why you got panned for that? That stuff is burning. Uh, well, you got to look at the, at the time. Like, we, that was, we made that record end of 91. Yep. It came out in 92. Chili Peppers had just gotten huge at that point. The Beastie Boys, they were doing really well. And, and there were just two schools of thought, in my mind, on uh, white guys that were rapping. <laughs> right, 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 you know, right, right. I dig, I dig. You were either metal cheesehead <laughs> or, or you, you, but the, the Beastie Boys, everyone loved the Beastie Boys, like, you know, and, sure. and it helped that you had Chuck D, and I love the Beastie Boys, like, but, you know, their first record, I thought they were jive. I think everyone thought that first record was jive. Then, you know, they released Paul's Boutique, and we all thought it was great. You know, but I remember the guys, the Dust Brothers, came out to our Los Angeles show. We turned with the Dead Milkmen. We were doing fine. I mean, the only reason Billy Goat didn't pop off because we were selling records, we had big tours, we were doing, like, selling out 1,000 seaters, 1,500. It, it was going to happen. We just imploded, and then we basically went underground, because in my mind, being infamous was always more important than being famous. And Wow, what, is that, what does that mean? That's really profound. Well, you know, I, 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 I've always read a lot. I remember the writer Ferdinand Celine said, avoid fame like the plague. Yeah. You know, and, you know, I think my generation, um, it, it, we weren't faking it back then. Like, you know, when we got offered a, a Miller Lite sponsorship or some cheese ball commercials, we said, no, it wasn't cool. Where because we had record, you know, you, you got a record deal, but you didn't put your song in a commercial. Right, right, you know, people right. From my generation, nowadays it's like we're gonna get a record deal. We're gonna get a song in commercial and get sixty thousand likes on Instagram. I mean, that's the paradigm for music now because of the internet. Everything's a goddamn advertisement. But back then, our heroes were like, you know, uh, you know punk rock you know like that that was like the honesty factor in all of it like punk rock was the thing that said you, you don't go do a fucking taco bell commercial 
<laughs> Dude, this this is the great. I I'm totally hip to it. I I mean, I was surfing through your 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 discot your lineage, and I'm like Billy Goat, and I'm like fuck more bitch less. This is the. I mean, it the it, and it's so tastefully done. There's not. I mean, it, it was. It, there's not an over amount of sampling or or scratching or whatever you call it or you know. And it's like, and the bass lines are hypnotic, and there's space in the music, so there's that jazz influence that you talked about and the whole thing just grooves but i mean being infamous i mean did you guys there you guys imploded um like we imploded like the original band left because like four members of the six members were strung out on heroin the great drummer who's my good friend who i play with all the time earl harbin earl i gotta get to this cat like, immediately dude yeah earl harbin he was like fuck this shit on the Grammys and doing MTV Unplugged with John Hassell and shit. You know, so it all just went up. It's a great thing. So, like, that band imploded. It's around the streets of Dallas. Sold every instrument I had. Everything was completely in pawn. One day, you know, we did a publishing advance. I bought this real nice Deegan Marimba. And I called up the guy from the symphony. I was like, hey, man, I... I gotta sell my marimba and eat it, but it's a pawn. Can you get it out? And he bought it for like 500 bucks. Go to KC and get the lot together. Together enough, reformed the band, and, and we just started touring. It was really at that Even though we still have a record deal, I, you know, I, I can really remember thinking back then, like, man, I don't want to be some super big pop star. Like, we had one song, Chef Boyardee that they, they, the record company wanted to, like, you know, make a big video, and we did. You can find it online, Chef Boyardee. Make a video, and we're going to push you, and uh, they got that song of that Polly Shore movie, Son-in-Law, and, you know, they, they were doing what record companies do back then. You know, they were giving you the big push, building a fan base, but I don't know why the idea of, like, fame was really mortifying to me. It seemed like it was something that could uh, keep, like, become a prison or something. Like, you'd only be able to do that. And, and even with Billy Goat, none of our, like, all our songs didn't sound like Fuck More Bitch Less. I mean, we were all over the place, and that's why we got Jerry Harrison from the Talking Heads to produce it, because to me, you know, I love the Talking Heads. Sure. They were one of the few bands of the 80s that I thought were, were uh, real and legitimate to me, they were doing the same thing that I found important. They were influenced by African music. And, and so he got us, he produced us, and he came out to our shows for years after that. But, um, you know, even he, one day I asked him how the Talking Heads made it. He goes, well, we all had synchronized watches. We showed up on time to everything. And I said, well, Billy Goat doesn't do that. We're always fucking late. <laughs> so I knew that was one strike against us. And, and he went on to name a few things and goes, and we got really lucky. And it was funny to hear a guy at that point who produced some records that were really big. I mean, three of the records he worked on the year he worked on our record became platinum records. That band Live, uh, I forget who else he did, a few others. But, you know, like, so that guy knew the game. And it was always interesting to hear from people in the machine that had played their card, hear them say that, like, do everything you want to, but still are 
uh, requires a little bit of luck. Mm, I dig. So, wow, that's right, spot you know, on. Yeah. You know, let so me started, let me ask we you. We reformed and started touring all the time, man. And we, you know, and okay, let me get back and finish with this record. And yeah. we had one song called "Old School Jam" that I still play with my band. And the record companies heard it, and they immediately said, "If you can write five more songs that sound just like this." We'll give you a new record deal. Oh my like god! They told our oh. manager that. Oh my god! Throw up in my and, throw know, up in the worked, toilet. He was a big management company. He was King Crimson's manager, our new manager at that time, you know. And he's like, Mikey, he's from Britain. Mikey, write five more songs like this, and I get you a big record deal. <laughs> I talked to three people. They love old school jam twenty three. I was like, man, you know me. I'm not going to do that. So I didn't do it. Well, what's so cool about this? I just one thing that I've just I, I've been I, you know I wanted to ask you about you remind me so much of Michael Shreve and I know you got how did you connect to he is he is so against the grain obviously he was propped up on you know his solo was caught on television he was 19 he became a star he was with Santana the guy was like once he left Santana Michael Henderson was living in his basement they cut an album on Columbia, was never released with Michael singing on it. To this day, he still is so, I don't know what the right word is. He does what he, what he digs. He does what he loves. Mike Dillon does what he loves. How did you guys meet and talk about your collaboration with Michael? Well, I got to say, man, uh, once again, it was going up to Seattle to play a gig with Matt Chamberlain because Matt had Critters Bug and he asked me to come play with Critters. I don't know what it's like now, but uh, I remember that year, like, we were on this thing called Bumper Drum, Bumper Drum, and it, it was at the end of Sunday, all the drummers that were still in town from the festival, they would pull them on stage, and Michael Shreve led it. Michael Shreve's Bumper Drum. Wow. So, you know, Matt and I got to play, it was with Treelock Gertu, uh, Shreve, uh, a couple of other badass congueros, you know. Uh, Michael Carabella from San Diego. Oh, I love the cat, yeah. Yeah, he was so cool. I remember talking to him for a while afterwards. So, <laughs> at that point, I was just, I was coming up from air for air in my own personal life and um, getting ready to move on from Billy Goat. So, I reconnected with Matt and Critters Buggin had a really big scene going in the Northwest. They were like this. They were pre-jam band. It definitely wasn't a jam band at all, but eventually they, we got lumped into being a jam <laughs> band. But, you know, Shreve was cool. He was one of my heroes. And he um, didn't like, he would come out to Critters Bugging Gigs and talk to Matt. And, uh, it was that time I was out there living in Seattle that he recorded that record. And he had a lot of us, of us come in and play on it with him. And he would tell stories. He'd be like, yeah, I can remember like, being 15 and climbing up above the stairs into the ceiling to watch Coltrane play. No, no, no. He, no, I, I, I'm going to send you all my interviews you with him. You got that story off him, right? Well, no. You he, he story, the first right? interview, he climbed through the ceiling at, at Stanford and, and wound up in the dressing room with Train and Elvin. And then they invited him to the workshop that night, and his dad went, but he, could, he was too young to get in, so he looked like a little puppy dog through the window at them. But that, yeah, he did yeah, the, I mean, like, yeah. that is so amazing. Like, that's how <laughs> powerful music is. Right, right, like, right. I can only, that's such a great story. Yeah, I mean, 
So, and Shreve, I haven't seen him in a while, or talked to him in a while, but man, you know, he's just always so nice to me. And um, yeah, no, and 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 uh, I, I, you know. We have to do part two. Uh, you know, there's just we haven't even gotten into the Latin thing. I, I just, I kind of wanted you to talk about how, you know, my thesis coming in after seeing you play, seeing Nola Tet play. Obviously, you guys are having a ball. But what are your intentions when you get up on the bandstand as it relates to touching people's hearts when you play? I mean, is what are your priorities now? I mean, I think you have clearly, you live this music, you live this life, you know, this l- musical life. I don't want to say the jazz life. I hate labels. But what are your, what are you, what are, what are you, how are you trying to, what are the most important things for you on the bandstand these days? You know, in so many ways, it really still the same thing for me. I want to do something that's a little different than the norm and get people get people with the rhythm, with the drums. I mean, it, it, whether it's vibraphone or timbales or tabla, I love it. The side to let go of their inhibitions and get into the music. And some places you go, you think, oh my God, these people are not going to get what we're doing. <laughs> they had a gig like that last night. It was a big after party down in Kansas City. There were 500 people at our show last night. And most, I would say, 300 of them had never heard of us. <laughs> But the fact that, like, few people came up to me like, oh, my God, yeah. what is this you're doing? Oh, I love it. You know, you know and, and that, that's it, you know. And, and for me, the way I get to that point is I, I always just dig deeper and try to, like, focus on the music and, and the rhythm and the, the energy. Because it is, you know, it is a ritual. We, we, we don't have a lot of ritual in this country. I think that's one reason why easy to get into drugs and whatnot it's because there's a lack of true ritual in, in capitalism in general not just this country every country yeah you're spot on and, and you know so for me I just want to have a little ritual on stage of music and do it with the kids and the guys I'm playing with in my band right now are just Two young, excellent New Orleans musicians. And, um, can we get can we get names on these cats? I'd like to track them down. Yeah, Nathan Lambertson is my upright bass player and uh, electric player, bass player in this band. Wow! And then Brendan Brendan Bull, who studied with Johnny B with Stanton Moore, moved North New Orleans from uh, South Carolina, and uh, now he's getting a master's back in South Carolina. But he comes goes back and forth between New Orleans and. And, uh, you know, and, and like, you know, Nathan's played, Nathan does all the trad music in New Orleans. Like, he knows all that old music. He works, he's like James, he works two, three gigs a day because he knows the, the vocabulary and all these old songs. But he grew up on punk rock, you know, you know Dead Kennedys and 
he saw Primus, you know, he liked Primus. Right, so, right, right. To me, you know, he, he, he understands rocks, but he, when he heard Charles Mingus, he fell in love with him. Great interviews today with Mark Benno and Mike Dillon. Uh, we will be back. I'll be in L.A. next week briefly, and uh, we'll do more. This is the Jake Feinberg Show. Till next time, peace. Thank you.